1: I have to say, our hot question of the day today is like hot in the most literal sense because we put it up about half an hour ago. It's already gotten hundreds of votes. And I'm assuming it's because of the topic. We had to tackle politics today and the announcement of Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott that they are going to be running in the next federal election as independence. There was a lot of anticipation about this. There was some uh, thinking that perhaps they would run for the Green Party, or maybe they would run for the NDP. So the whole weekend was speculation. Uh, but this morning, they put an end to that saying that no, they they feel the way to do this, the way to make their mark is to run as independent. So for our hot question of the day, we're asking you, do you think that is the right decision? Do you think yes, it is, you'd vote for her? Or do you think no, they should have run with the NDP or no, they should have run with the Greens? Now, we didn't put on there, no, I wouldn't vote for her. That's a given if you wouldn't be interested in this otherwise, right? We're talking about today's decision, like period, and those who would have liked to seen her do one of those three things. So go to simi Sarah 980 on Twitter to cast your vote on this. You can also go to at CKNW and cast your vote there. You can also email me, simmy at cknw.com, and Use our buzz line to tell us what you think. 604-331-BUZZ, 331 They are running as independents. That is the much-anticipated decision from former Liberal MPs Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott this morning. They held press conferences within a half hour of each other. One in Vancouver, the other in Markham, Ontario. First in Vancouver, where Jody Wilson-Raybould made the announcement.
2: As an independent, I will be truly free to take the guidance of the citizens of Vancouver Granville and to represent you. I will not have to try and convince myself that just because the way it has always been done means that it must continue to be done that way. And
1: not long after that, Jane Philpott laid out her plans in front of her constituents in Markham. I know you're all wondering what colour I was going to wear today. (laughs) and i didn't want to give any way a hint so i am going to run in the federal election as an independent candidate for the people of markham Stoville. that's so true about the colors there was so much speculation over the weekend about what this decision might be but now let's talk about the repercussions of this what this might mean for the larger political picture joining us now global news chief political correspondent david aiken good morning david
3: Morning, Simi, and I'm, I'm on Parliament Hill right now, about 20 feet from Elizabeth May, where she is reacting to this announcement this morning. And as you can appreciate, she's disappointed because, as we heard in this press conference, both Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott had many discussions with Elizabeth May, who was quite active trying to recruit both of them to run as Green Party candidates. And the big question, of course, that we just had, and again, this is just seconds ago, Elizabeth May speaking to uh, reporters here on Parliament Hill is, Elizabeth May does not have the power under the Green Party Constitution to say that she will not run a candidate Uh against Jody Wilson-Raybould. She doesn't have that power, but she hopes not to campaign against him. In other words, it's going to be up to the Green Party Riding Association in Vancouver-Granville, where Jody Wilson-Raybould is running, to decide, do they want to run against her or not? Looking back to the 2015 election, Jody Wilson-Raybould won the riding by a pretty substantial margin. She got about 45%. And then the NDP, NDP uh, candidate, Mira Oreck, I think former Vancouver councillor, did pretty good in second with about 26 percent. And the conservative candidate had about 26 percent, you know, 25 and a half. So NDP and conservatives combined did better than Wilson Raybould as a liberal. And the Greens were a non-factor. They only got about three percent of the vote in this is Vancouver Granville. So I think it's going to be a fascinating race. In Vancouver, Grantville, I do mm-hmm. think, and there is a good feeling on the ground, Wilson-Raybould is going to get a lot of support for her independent candidacy. But the liberals are going to run somebody. And it's, you know, there's still a lot of, you know, dyed-in-the-wool liberals who are still on Team Trudeau. So now Wilson-Raybould has to make the case why Trudeau no longer deserves the support of the 45% of voters in Van Grand who voted liberal last time. Right. She didn't get to that today, but she's going to have to make that point at some point.
1: And I wonder then, you mentioned, you know, the Green Party here too, will all of the other parties now, David, view this as a riding that is potentially up for grabs, including the Conservatives, maybe?
3: I think absolutely. And, you know, um, just the the dynamics of the riding, of course, folks who are in Vancouver probably know where it is. It's sort of just out of the downtown, uh, or it's a big chunk of the downtown, but it's a more affluent riding. Uh, So, you know, a lot of the condo towers, a lot of people with higher incomes, and those people tend to be liberal or conservative voters. So we'll see. The conservatives, are, I think, are definitely going to have a play for it. I, I don't know if the NDP right now under Jagmeet Singh is in such a strong position to challenge. So if there's a vote split among the people who voted liberal in 2015, I think that vote split goes to Wilson Raybould. It may go to the Green candidate, mm-hmm. should they choose to run somebody. And conservative. It's a four-way race. It's a different story for Jane Fulpott on the other side of the country in Markham Stouffville. Even though she had the popular Justin Trudeau at her back in 2015 against a very unpopular Stephen Harper, it was pretty much neck and neck against the conservatives in her riding. She won with uh, 49%. The conservative got 45%. Um, She was going to have a hard time holding that riding as a liberal. And as an independent candidate, it seems almost impossible that she's going to be able to um, pull. She's going to need every one of those liberal voters to come her way as an independent and again, that just seems a very difficult task. Right. And the Conservatives have lined up candidates. They're, they're, they were gunning for that riding in any event.
1: Now, P- David, for people who don't know what the difference is between being an independent MP and those that are affiliated with the party, what is that? What benefits are there to being an independent versus being politically related to a party?
3: Well, this is the other thing. So, in, in And it's a good question, Sammy, because in both of the press conferences, we heard about two women, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, who want to do politics differently and fight for The things are in politics for but here's the thing there is no one more powerless on parliament hill than an independent mp you do not get cash for resources for staff and research you have no chance to really table any legislation you don't get any seats on house of commons committees where a whole lot of important work is done and you you might if you're lucky get one question one question-in-question question period, mm. once every two weeks. And media, I mean, we're paying attention to the movers and shakers most of the time, and that is the government party, the opposition party, and generally not to independent MPs. Elizabeth May has been a great notable exception. She gets a lot of attention as the Green leader, but again, the notable exception. So these if they win as independent MPs, it's hard to see how they'll get much done other than sitting in a corner, in the far corner of the House of Commons for four years, with people really not paying a lot of attention to them. And I want to contrast something here, and this maybe goes to Jane Philpott's situation more. There's another independent MP from Saskatchewan, from Regina. His name is Aaron Weir, and he got kicked out of the NDP caucus. And Aaron Weir struggled with the idea, should I run as an independent? And he decided, no, he was going to step down, not seek re-election, because he felt if he ran, he would split the progressive vote and allow the Conservatives an automatic victory. That's pretty much what Jane Philpott will be doing here. She'll be splitting a, quote, progressive liberal vote in Markham, and that's going to let almost certainly a conservative win. How does and she feel there, about
1: that? Was she asked about that?
3: She let's yes, she, will, she sort of was asked about it, but she doesn't really have much of an answer that, you know, voters get to decide and I'll work with every party. wilson Raybull too, was not asked that so much. But again, Vancouver-Granville may be a little bit different. I don't think the conservatives are an automatic. It still likely would be a progressive uh, MP, if it was not Wilson Raybould, you know it might be the Liberals. Could be a new Democrat, but but again, that's the point. Independents don't really get a whole lot done, and it's that's the way the system's built. And again, both women spoke about how they want to change the system. Fine, lots of candidates speak out wanting to change the system. In fact, that's exactly what the Liberals did in 2015. They were going yeah. to have electoral reform and change things, and they didn't do that. It's hard to do as a governing party, yeah. let alone as an independent MP.
1: So what are you going to be watching for now, David? Is it that approach of what candidates could the conservatives and the liberals be running in these writings?
3: I'm going to be watching for the reaction among dyed-in-the-wool liberals. Now, there are, certainly the two women today are personally very popular with a lot of their constituents, and they had a lot of those supporters there today. But there's been a lot of liberals who, while well, initially may have been sympathetic to the way this unfolded for Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and were disappointed in the way Trudeau handled the situation, at this point in time, we're, what, five months in, there's a lot of liberals sort of rolling their eyes and going, okay, we've heard enough, we know the problem, and we've seen the damage that both of these women have done mm-hmm. to the entire liberal brand. I mean, the polls have just gone south, the conservatives are leading in the polls now, and really, it's been those two women. So I'm going to be interested to see, is this the end of it, or what will the liberal response be? My suspicion is the liberals, particularly in Van Grand, are going uh, to be as aggressive trying to hold that seat as any seat In the Vancouver area, also be interested, and we haven't heard from Joyce Murray. She's next door in Vancouver Quadra. Teddy Fry in Vancouver Centre. Will they be campaigning against Wilson Raypole in Vancouver Granville? I think that's going to be an interesting development to watch as well.
1: Was this also another indication, though, how out of the political conversation the federal NDP are at this point? Because all the talk was about them joining the Greens, not necessarily the NDP.
3: That's true. I think that's a, that's a good indication. Um, I know that, I'm trying to think, which one? Yes, I think it was Wilson Ray Bolt. She did say that she had a conversation with uh, yes. Jeremy Singh. But uh, it was it, it, clearly it was Elizabeth May who was uh, the more ardent suitor and uh, found the most favor. But in the end, they just didn't want to be part of party politics. And, and both both women, this is J- uh, Jody and Jane, you know, shout outs to Elizabeth May, etc. But as I said, you know, Elizabeth May, just speaking to us a minute ago, uh, you know, pretty disappointed. And she, Elizabeth May, was saying it's very hard in our system to get elected outside the party process. In fact, let me give you this. Uh, me, I'll be a real Canadian politics nerd on you here. Okay. The last time an independent MP won in a general election was 2008. And in fact, in that election, two independents won. One in Nova Scotia, Bill Casey was running as an independent man and uh, a guy named Andre Artur was running in Quebec as an independent. So it's 2008 was the last time. And independents, tons of them run every election, but none have won since 2008. And before that, you got to go all the way back to 1957 when a pair of independents succeeded cool. in the general election. The odds are just very, very long against hey, them succeeding.
1: Sure sounds like it. Listen, David, thank you so much for talking to us about it.
3: Hey, no problem. Have a great afternoon.
1: Fascinating story. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent in Ottawa with the very latest on the reaction to this. Well, we're not done talking about federal politics just yet, thanks to another very interesting story that came up over the weekend. Now, Green Party leader Elizabeth May has been talking this morning about her disappointment that Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott decided not to join her party. But what about the MPs she does have, like the recently elected Green MP in Nanaimo Ladysmith, Paul Manley? Well, he found himself in some hot water over the weekend after audio of some of his comments on a podcast resurfaced. Uh, Have a little snippet to what he had to say about the media's coverage of the
4: 9-11 terror attacks. Corporate media are all bought into the whole 9-11 thing. Of I mean, you, you know, like you, if you, if you talk to uh, those people, they they're going to, they're going to tell you, you're a conspiracy theorist. Uh,
1: yeah, there is actually more to come on this. In an interview with Global News this weekend, he explained his perspective and his point of
4: view. Things were coming out about uh, the information around the Iraq war and what was true and what wasn't true. And so, you know, you're trying to parse through all kinds of information about, about complex issues and figure out, uh, you know, what is truth and what is, what is not true about these things.
1: Okay, what does that actually mean then? What was he actually believing when it came to 9-11? Uh, Paul Manley also said that he thinks the people or the person who kind of dug up this audio from the past did this to try and take focus away from what he says really matters.
4: I think they're trying to create a distraction, and they're probably trying to create uh, create a distraction from what's really important right now, which is climate change.
1: I'm sure that's what he wants to talk about, rather than some of the comments that he made. The thing is, he didn't get this kind of scrutiny during the election campaign. I'm not sure everybody thought that he was going to win that. So now it comes. Let's talk more about this. Joining us now is Richard Justman, our global news online journalist at the BC Legislature. Hi, Richard. Hi, Sami. Where did this come from?
5: So we got sent this audio, uh, two different interviews that was done in 2007 and 2011. Uh, they are from an interview he did with a radio show that was on Campus Radio uh, that's now posted online called Unbought and Unbossed, hosted by a conspiracy theorist named Raymond Geisler. Uh, he doesn't have his show anymore on Nanaimo Radio, uh, but the audio dates back, um, as I mentioned, uh, more than a decade in one case and then uh, eight years in the other case. And you played some of that audio. That's from the 2007 interview. Uh, the comments in that one uh, will stand out more to people. And I think the big thing here, Simi, is Paul Manley was an independent filmmaker. Uh, he's known for having uh, some out there ideas, some that have been proven, some that haven't been. And now that he is an MP, he will be questioned on a lot of those ideas because the 9-11 truth movement is one of those things yeah. that has been highly concerned. Concerning to people in terms of questioning uh, how 9 11 unfolded, who was responsible. You explained it very well there. Manley's defense is he was referring only to Saddam Hussein and Iraq's involvement, which has now been proven false. But another thing I found he did this interview in October of 2007. In April of that year, US officials were out there telling the public. Iraq is not involved in this. They were not involved in 9-11. So Manley was holding on to old ideas even when he did that interview in the fall of 2007, questioning no doubt what the government was telling him. Uh, And the government was right all along when they stood up in the spring of 2007 and said Iraq is not involved in 9-11. So even to hold those views are are controversial and untrusting of what governments do.
1: Also, he seems a bit kind of taken aback that this kind of stuff would come up now. But Mm -hmm. honestly, has he not followed any politics ever, knowing that this is what happens when you run for <laughs> politics?
5: I, I think he was more nervous than he was taken aback. I, I think, you know, and you just listen to some of the comments he made in 2007. If you come out with a statement that says it's all bunk, they're going to take that one 15-second clip and they're going to deride you with it and then discredit you in the eyes of the Canadian public. Well, I think Manley was pretty sure about how things unfold when you make comments like this. I just don't think at that point when he was saying it, he expected he was going to be an elected yeah. official. Uh, which he now is uh, 12 years later. You know, this is one of those things where he was elected by the people of Nanaimo, Ladysmith, in a by-election. It was an historic and rare by-election, considering we have the federal election coming up. And a lot was made of what Manley was going to do to try to keep hold of that seat with the election coming up in October. Right. This won't help. He was supposed to do a press conference this morning following his swearing in, and less than an hour before it, he canceled the press conference. Ooh. Uh, so we're still waiting to hear from him and from Elizabeth May on this. You know, I know you mentioned she's been talking about Jodie Wilson-Raybould. Yeah. I was just in an Adrian Dix announcement, so I didn't hear that. So I, I'd like to go through and see if anybody asked or what her comments were about Paul Manley, because <laughs> it'd be very interesting to see how the Greens are going to proceed from this.
1: I, I actually, I haven't seen anything because I was looking for that as well. So I just wonder if there was so much focus on the uh, Jodie Wilson-Raybould-Jane Philpott story that this didn't get asked about. But you're right about the timeline here too, Richard. It's not like oh he's been elected and he's got four years to show people what he can do he has a very small amount of time here to ask for re-election
5: yeah and one something like this will lead to people having questions and you know Good for Paul Manley. He took my phone calls on Saturday. We spoke a number of times. He did the interview. He addressed the comments. Uh, but he'll be asked by more people as this story is now out there and people can listen to the audio. And, you know, there may be questions from, uh, his supporters and from his constituents around his views, um, on 9 11 and what he knows. Now, he, he said a number of times he's not a 9 11 truther but he also had his documentary film played at a 911 truth festival in 2011 Ooh. Ooh. and now he's saying he was uncomfortable about it but he still took the paycheck and he st- uh, he said you know as a documentary filmmaker you want to get your films out in front of as many people as possible but at that point he never condemned organizations like that he just seemed fine with the fact that his movie which he said is linked to 911 and all of this stuff there's a lot more details on our website around so, that so yeah, but how that was that he okay stood out with to that yeah exactly. how was he
1: okay with that in 2011 exactly. and he's not he's not a 9-11 truther otherwise why would you even be okay with that happening
5: and, and his answer was simmy uh, it's hard to get independent films screened, and i'm happy for anyone to watch them uh you know we can't control uh. who listens to us on the radio or watches us on the news and i think he probably felt that for an independent filmmaker but you know you had 9-11 truth movement people standing up there and introducing his film and i think if you were very concerned at the time, you may have said something about right. that movement. Because it is, for those victims of 9-11, this movement is so damaging and destroying right around, yeah. you know, trying Especially to,
1: now, in light of everything we know, sure. and in all this other kind of hashtag fake news stuff that goes around, like Sandy Hook truthers, all that kind of stuff, yeah. we know how damaging that is.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, one of those things where yeah. Paul Manley can say, and I, I believe him, that he doesn't prescribe in the idea that it was an inside job, but I do believe he still has questions around what happened and and if the American government told the truth, and I think all of that has been proven now beyond a reasonable doubt, and and Manley should forget those concerns that he still has.
1: Why didn't this come up before the Richard? Like, why didn't this come yeah. up during the campaign? Is it because was it was, he was too much of an outside shot at that point? I, I don't think so. You know,
5: these things are hard at this point, Simi, there is information on all of us out there on the internet. There's so much information, <laughs> so true. videos of us doing things, pictures, audio. And I think we don't see the same sort of opposition research that we used to see. There was a past where there was a limited place to look for information on people and you'd often see it get dug up now it's harder and harder i guess i don't know it's it's one of those things where you know maybe his political opponents were waiting till he won or maybe people you know just don't have the resources right. to dig into candidates like they used to and and the also point you make is a valid one maybe people didn't think he was going to win but i think if you looked at those polls there was a pretty good chance he was going to win and if somebody had this Information before the vote, they would have released it because I think uh, it could yeah. have been something that could have altered the uh, the outcome of that yeah. uh, by-election.
1: And yet we have another one coming <laughs> up. So Richard, thank you. Sammy, thank you. That is Richard Desmond, our global news online journalist at the BC Legislature.
6: Twenty-four seasons in the making, the Toronto Raptors are headed to their first NBA Finals.
1: Uh, Did you catch that on the weekend? I'm sure you did. That was on Sportsnet there. The big game on Saturday evening where the Toronto Raptors beat the Milwaukee Bucks 100-94, to game six of the Eastern Conference Finals. So for the first time ever, you've got the Raptors any team from Canada actually going to the NBA finals where they will be taking on that juggernaut that is known as the golden state warriors. But Hey, let's not worry about that right now. Let's just enjoy the lead up to the party. This is the first time that the Raptors have advanced to the finals. As I mentioned in their 20 plus year history and ESPN commentator, Stephen A. Smith talked about the hero of the series, Kawhi Leonard, right? And how he doesn't just have a city behind him that he has an entire country behind him have a listen
6: how do you think whatever happens over the next few weeks influences what winds up happening with Kawhi? The fair answer is I don't think any of us knows a damn thing about what Kawhi Leonard is going to do. Outside of maybe his uncle, Dennis Robinson, uh, who spoke to Yahoo Sports and gave some very poignant comments about him and why he ultimately ended up leaving San Antonio, why this is such a great moment for him. But we simply don't know because Kawhi Leonard uh, doesn't give any kind of indication. Charles Barkley nicknamed him uh, accurately, I might add, Cyborg. He shows no emotion. He walks up to me during warm-ups, Greeny, and gives me a piss. Hey, Stephen A., the same exact impression that he had while playing in the first quarter, the second, the third, and the fourth quarter. It never changes. You get no emotion. I mean, he should easily be called Spock Leonard. I mean, that's how he is. There's no emotion. I mean, that's what it is. And so, you know, you don't know what he's going to do, but I will tell you this. Toronto is a fabulous city. I could do without the cold weather and the winters. They're right near Buffalo. I'm not down with that. And I'm sure him being a Southern California native. He probably is not going to be down with that as well. But I will tell you, most teams actually all teams in the NBA have a city behind them. This man has a country behind him. you got Kawhi and Dine, where he did the, the restaurants have promised him free meals for life. If he were to stay, the entire country of Canada has basically descended upon Toronto and they all support him. He has been deified already.
1: It's kind of There's a lot of truth for once to what Stephen A. Smith was saying there. Uh, everybody seems to be on board the Raptors bandwagon. Uh, you know, you just heard Stephen A. Smith talking very highly of him, even though the team lost the first two games in Milwaukee. And nobody really thought that we were going to find ourselves here.
3: When I'm watching them last night, and you can just see Kawhi's got nothing left. That's Milwaukee's got a better bench, Milwaukee's deeper, and as big as Giannis is, Chris Middleton on certain possessions and nights is every bit as big. This has a one-and-done. I know that's a term we use in college basketball. It's really got a mellow Syracuse one-and-done and feel the to it. The
6: numbers we just showed yeah. illustrate,
7: this is who they are, this is what they do. They've won more games than anybody. They blow you out more than anybody.
6: They continue it in the postseason. Two games are enough for me to say, this is a wrap. What do you see? It definitely is a wrap. I can't see Toronto winning more than one game this series. I actually said it was over after game one. The Milwaukee Bucks are going to win the World Championship. Oh, wow. Wait, wait, wait. They're going to win it all. They're going to win it all. The Bucks Bucks
4: are going to have the edge in every series they play, and that includes the one in the finals against the Warriors. The Bucks are the best team in basketball.
6: I'll say this until everyone starts believing it. And I believe that Milwaukee is a lot better than what they will see than, than, than Golden State.
1: You know what is so entertaining about that is those are a lot of people who are paid a lot of money to prognosticate and got, could not have gotten that one more wrong and more surprised. But you know what? They're not alone in jumping on that Raptors bandwagon. We're going to talk about that right now with our in-studio guest that we have, our producer and CKW contributor, Claire Allen, who is uh, a 10-day-old Raptors fan. What would yeah. you say, Claire?
2: I'd say that's correct.
1: It was the shot that got you, right? Yeah, it was
2: the last shot in round one.
1: That's when she joined you. The amazing Kawhi Leonard shot off the rim four times. Seven game fan. (laughs) That is it. She's just joined the party. And also with us is our CKW producer Chris Pretlinger Grant, who we would say full time fan, right? Chris? Yeah,
8: not a Raptors fan, but I'll watch Magic Heat in uh, early February. I'll subscribe to that sort of thing. I'll listen to basketball podcasts at the gym. I'm here for this.
1: You are the only person in this room that I normally talk basketball with. The
8: only person on this entire floor.
1: That's true. Floor 21 of the building that we work at. Uh, Claire, you were in a public place watching
2: the game on.
1: And so were you, both of you. Let's start with you, though, Claire. What was the atmosphere like where you were? You were in a restaurant and the game was on.
2: Yeah, I was in Victoria, BC at the Cactus Club downtown. The game was on. And at first, they didn't want to play the sound. They just wanted to have the game playing silently in the background. And my table actually convinced them to turn the sound on. It was like a 30-minute negotiation being like, no, the sound needs to be on. This is a big game. Um, and so finally they turned it on and the whole bar area was going crazy, especially towards the end, like that fourth quarter, people were going nuts, primarily my table, but also people around (laughs) were just going crazy. Place was packed. Uh, yeah, it was very packed. Even out on the patio, people were watching. Okay, and Chris, where were you? You were also out the I was at a bar
8: out by my new place. I don't have cable at this place I moved into about three weeks ago, which is absolutely terrible being a sports fan. That's why I, I have TV in the first place. Here we are with okay. NBA and NHL championships. Um, so it sought this bar, and this is the most raucous crowd I've heard since 2011. Really? The most excited I've heard a bar. I wasn't drinking age back in 2011, but I imagine this is what it would have been like. There's probably 40 people, 45 people— pounding on the table, yelling defense, yelling let's go Raptors. There were some poor families there just sitting in the corner trying to eat their chicken wings <laughs> after a baseball game. So poor them. But poor them. But it was so loud. I couldn't hear the commentary. If you asked me at that time, I couldn't tell you if there was music on or commentary. <laughs> um, and it was so loud that the bartender who was sitting closer to me than you are right now, yep. just within arm's distance, couldn't hear what I wanted to drink. Everyone was yelling defense. Everyone was yelling uh, whenever there was a blocked shot. Pascal Siakam shot uh, in the second quarter. It was lunacy.
1: So then would we say, Claire, would we say that Vancouver is firmly on the Toronto Raptors bandwagon now? Like, Do you think the city is pulling for the Raptors here?
2: I think all of Canada is pulling for the Raptors now. So they are Canada's team? Well, there's nobody else to me.
1: (laughs) But some people might still feel like, and I feel this myself sometimes, like, you know, many of us have very fond memories of the Grizzlies, so you find it hard to, and also it's a Toronto team, like, would you cheer for? Yeah, but the
2: Grizzlies don't exist anymore in the form that we remember them. They're down in Memphis.
1: But when the Canucks went to the Stanley Cup in 2011, there was a lot of discussion in other parts of Canada about how, no, they are not Canada's team because they couldn't do that. But is it different
2: for the Raptors, do you I think yes, because it's the only NBA franchise in the country.
8: Exactly the same thing with the Blue Jays. I think that when they went to the playoffs three and four years ago and did very well, everybody sort of picked up that momentum because there are fractures of fan bases. I'm a Cleveland Cavaliers fan. I want to see the Raptors do well, but I'm never going to fully identify as a Raptors fan.
1: But in this case? In
8: this case. I always want the Raptors to do well, actually, because the better they do, the more interested my friends are and the longer they pay attention to basketball <laughs> like for, Claire, So I can yes. actually have conversations.
1: Yeah she, yeah, she texts me now when the game is on to talk about the game. And I've, I, like, I feel like every single time I'm like, who is this? So <laughs> who Claire, are you? So
8: Claire actually gets to cheer for a good basketball team. Meanwhile, Simi, yes. we have probably... Two of the worst four teams oh. in the NBA that we're just hard fans of. Long but.
1: story short, I am a New York Knicks fan. There's a long story behind that yeah. for a reason. But uh, right now, firmly on cheering for the Raptors Absolutely. here. So they're talking about putting up uh, potentially big screens right. in front of the Vancouver Art Gallery on the Georgia Street side to allow people to watch the game starting on Thursday. You think that's a good idea?
2: I think it's a great idea. I think people are going to be very excited Um, I would definitely go check it out. I I think it'd be fun to be in that atmosphere. And I hope that Vancouver can do as well as Toronto did, because after game six, with all those people in the streets, you saw it went further than the eye can see. The streets were crowded. But they were celebrating. But there were no. I know, but
1: there were <laughs> no were, yeah. arrests. But they were celebrating. I know, I know. But they st- weren't commiserating. It they were matter. celebrating. We seem no, to mess, it mess it things up did, here. Sometimes. It didn't matter. They were but happy people. Yeah, they weren't unhappy people. You never
2: people. know. You never know when you get a crowd that I size. They when really, they
1: lose in heartbreak, then talk to me about how well behaved they were. I would
2: just hope that you know, despite what happens here, if we do set up public viewing, that everyone is well. I think they will.
8: It would, I be, be, it would be cool if, after say game three or four, if the Raptors actually pull it off against the Warriors, that the broadcast would have like an eight panel split screen of the reactions of people in public square. You're geeking
1: out on us here, Chris. I'm totally on board with that. Well
8: I'm getting thirty-two steps ahead of myself. They're (laughs) playing the best (laughs) basketball team anyone has ever assembled, (laughs) so I don't think it's actually going to happen. But imagine the the marketing opportunity. I'm saying Warriors in six here, but
1: I'm saying one or two games. The Raptors are going to be in this.
2: Say Warriors in five. I don't know, I hope so. Oh man, come
1: on. What's the point of being on the bandwagon if you can't say Right, that I they're think gonna... we're going up against the Warriors.
2: <laughs> this All is, right, Steph Curry is quite the machine. All right, let's and, ask the question then. Do you think this is Canada's team? 100%. The Raptors are Canada's team. Until we get another franchise, Canada's team.
1: Okay, Canada's team. Chris?
8: Yeah, so ever since the Grizzlies lost, and they weren't even that big of an attraction, I think Vince hey, Carter hey, back hey, in the day... Hey, you
1: watch your mouth, young man. Mike Bibby,
8: Mike Bibby, I'm sorry. But with Vince Carter doing what he did in the dunk contest, I know I'm geeking out here, and I'm talking to probably the top three percentile of basketball fans out there, but you I think are. Toronto has always been Canada's well,
0: team. Well, let's ask. Let's... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Let's ask people then, shall
1: we? We will open up the phones here. Is it fair to call the Toronto Raptors Canada's team? Will you be cheering for them? Will you be watching? Let's find out. Well, some diabetes and arthritis patients out there might be nervous by what they heard today in that press conference by Health Minister Adrian Dix that they are going to be asked to switch medications if they've been on one that the government says they're no longer going to cover the same way. That might make them nervous. So we wanted to get more information about what today's announcement means to the patients out there. So joining us now is Dr. John Esdell, who's a rheumatologist and scientific director at the Arthritis Research Canada uh, Centre. Dr. Esdell, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you for having me, Simi.
1: What did you think about this announcement today? What does it mean?
7: I think it was a great announcement. I think it's a great day for um, for British Columbia. Uh, the drugs are being that are being switched to biological molecules, and they're switching from the originator drug to the what called a biosimilar, and I call a biogeneric. the The biosimilar drugs have the identical genetic code, amino acid sequence of the originator. Uh, they've been used uh, for six years in the European Union, who has stated that the European Medicines Agency has stated that along with 25 other biologics they've approved, they have seen no problems whatsoever. Um, So this uh, is basically a switch from uh, uh, one uh, identical drug to another. There are slight differences. It's like identical twins. Um you have the, they both have the same genetic code but you know there are little teeny tiny differences that the mothers can usually tell after a right. few days um, but they're not they're not of any consequence whatsoever to what they're going to do for the patient
1: So then why and haven't people been using them like why hasn't there been a more voluntary switch to them
7: Um I, that's a good question I think you know they've been avail- they have not been available that long in Canada Health Canada approved them much more recently than the European Union, and so that, that's one aspect. The governments uh, across Canada have said, and the insurers, that anybody starting a new drug has to start on them, so that's been happening, and this is just going to say, look, we're now going to, over a six-month period, uh, we've been talking to the doctors, we've been talking to the pharmacists, we're going to move people over. And the, certainly I can speak for the rheumatology community. We've been discussing this for, for a year, and we're not worried about it at all.
1: Um, what about patients? Though? Do they come to you? Do they have questions?
7: Well, in fact, the government has uh, been proactive and said they're going to pay for an extra uh, medical visit, and they're also going to pay for education from the pharmacist. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of concern about us making sure that the patients are well-informed on the part of the government and ourselves, I think, you know, yes, this is a change, but we have to remember if you, if you're getting a pill, um, that every year it may be a different generic that the pharmacist gives you depending on price and all of that sort of thing. This is really a bio generic, So it's a biological molecule, which in Europe, there are countries which have switched people multiple times, uh, based on price and so on. Um, and, you know, and switched back. Um, it's it's not as right. exciting as exciting as it sounds. Um, but for people think, who
1: have been taking, like you know, if they're managing their condition that they have diabetes or arthritis, yeah. and they've been taking one drug for a long time, they're very comfortable yeah. on that. They don't want to risk the, having a problem, a health problem.
7: Well, they should. There is absolutely no reason to believe that there is a risk. Um, there have been uh, more than a hundred studies looking at people switching from the originator. To, um, to a biogeneric, and the information from all of this, as well as from the randomized trials, which are smaller numbers, um, actually suggests there is not a problem. And there's no reason there should be a problem. These molecules are uh, so... The variation from each batch of the originator is such that each batch of the original drug is in fact a biogeneric of itself. Right. They are not identical. So people have have switched a whole pile of time if they've been on it years and years and had no reaction. So and what, they're not going to have a reaction now.
1: So what about these new drugs as well that are being listed? What kind of a difference is that going to make for, say, arthritis oh. patients?
7: Well, first of all, there was a, a, a talk I just heard from Tom Elliott, an endocrinologist, who they're getting access to... Um, a drug they've been trying to get for two years from the ministry. And it's going to affect, it's going to, affect, uh, it's going to uh, be used by perhaps up to 50,000 British Columbians uh, who are now going to get it covered. So they're happy. We're happy because we're getting access to a, a new drug called Ixikizumab, uh That is, you know, if you, you've probably heard of psoriasis, it's yes. a chronic skin disease. Uh, some people have it very mildly, but some people, you know, it's over their whole body. And quite ghastly. This drug can reduce, uh, it from whatever they have to 0% in some of them. It's, it's staggering. Um, so getting access to that for psoriatic arthritis, spondylitis, or, so, and psoriasis, um, is going to be, for us, you know, not everyone, huge. hopefully, uh, huge. Yeah. And we're getting, the other thing they are doing is we've been saying we'd like the criteria relaxed for being able to use, um, uh, some of these drugs that obviously at the beginning, the government made very strict, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, a harb- I'm in the harbor. Um, they made very strict rules for who could have access to these, um, these agents. Right. And we been they're going to relax it, allow us a little more latitude. Only specialists can prescribe them. They're going to give us a little more latitude right. so- and expand the number of conditions for which we can use some of them, which is great. It's fantastic.
1: Okay, so Dr. Estill, then BC is leading the way on this. Why aren't more provinces doing this and do you think they should?
7: Oh, well, I don't think there's any doubt every province should. And the word I've heard on the street, but you know, BC is always the leader. I mean, we are the leaders when it comes to healthcare. And uh, that's great. Uh, Every province is sitting back waiting for BC to take the lead and see what happens. And I think uh, think this... uh, First of all, all of the rheumatologists are very happy with this. I gather the endocrinologists are happy with this, um, the change with the insulin and the new uh, very powerful uh, anti-diabetic drug. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, every province should. The the patented Medicines Prices Review Board last month announced that in 2019, had, if no one was switched, no one was transitioned from... The original took the uh, biogeneric. Canada would have spent unnecessarily, based on just not 100% changing, but the same number as in the OECD countries, they would have thrown away $891 million this year. So the year is almost half over. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, people say we need need resources. Well, this is going to generate uh, new resources. Okay. uh, No consequence. No, there'll be no loss of good health care.
1: Okay. Well, that's what people like to hear then. Uh, Dr. Esdell, thank you for your time. No, pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. John Esdell, Rheumatologist and Scientific Director at Arthritis Research Canada. The Senate, as an institution here in Canada, takes a lot of criticism. Its members are unelected. There are a lot of perks. I mean, you know how that story goes. But we do know that the Red Chamber, or the Chamber of Sober Second Thought, as it's called, is meant to be a place where proposed legislation is discussed, maybe amended, tweaked, and then sent on its way. But in recent times, it seems like it has become or is trying to become more than that, which is why a recent opinion piece in the Globe and Mail newspaper caught our eye. Hugh Siegel wrote that there's some question about what the Senate is up to right now, that whether or not killing a government bill that was part of an election platform that helped elect a majority government is the way for them to go. So we wanted to talk more about this. Hugh Siegel sat in the Senate as an Ontario Conservative between 2000. 2005 and 2014, and is now a principal of Massey College and senior advisor at Airden Burles LLP. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So let's talk about this legislation, Bill C48. What is it? Yep.
9: So it's a bill that was brought in by the government um, with respect to the regulation of tanker traffic on the coast of your province, and it was brought in based on a promise made by the then leader of the third party, Mr. Trudeau, in. Um, BC during the 2015 election campaign, where he undertook that if elected, his government would bring in a bill to do precisely that. So that's the purpose of the bill. The bill cleared the House of Commons, not only with the support of the government, but the support of other parties, including Miss May of the Greens and the New Democrats. So there was quite a large consensus by the folks who were elected to represent us in the House of Commons that this bill should be made into law. It then came into the Senate, and there was quite an intense lobbying process against it. Uh, Various people from uh, the provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta, various people from different parts of the oil industry, made a case before a Senate committee that they thought the bill was flawed and should um, either be seriously amended or it should, in fact, not be allowed to proceed. So what happened, it's one of those very interesting things. It doesn't happen very much. There was a committee meeting, and the vote came as to whether the bill should go forward uh, for final debate on third reading in the Senate. And the committee uh, split 6-6, and in the Senate and in the parliamentary system... If um, a bill is tied, if the the movement of the bill on to the next level is tied, the bill is deemed to have died. Right. And that would mean that the committee's report to the Senate would be, and this will come up in a couple of weeks, this bill should not now proceed. Now, the Senate still has the right to not accept that report and make changes to it, but my piece essentially, to me, was about the Senate can make amendments, it can make changes, it can make tweaks, but it doesn't have the right, under the Salisbury Convention, which is how the British House of Lords operates, to stand in the way completely of a bill that was brought in in good faith by the government based on a promise they made and for which they received a majority government in the last election.
1: So then what is going on here, Hugh? Because this is not the first time recently that we've heard of a story like this. We've also been covering the bill that was brought forward by Ronna Ambrose, former Conservative MP that has been stalled in the Senate for 700 days now, twice voted on unanimously in the House of
9: Commons, once again stuck in the Senate. What is going on in the Senate? So I would say there are two dynamics at play. Dynamic one, uh, we now have a majority of senators uh, who have been appointed as independents. They're not appointed as members of the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party. We then have a small Conservative caucus of about 30-odd souls who don't believe in this new approach to the Senate, don't believe that the Senate should be made up of independent people, like the old partisan approach, and their approach has been to stall and delay everything they possibly can so that the Prime Minister is not able to indicate in the next election campaign that I made some promises and we kept them. So they have the right to do that. It's, it's an open, free society. They can express their views. The real issue is, do they have the right to stop a piece of legislation from actually being passed, if it's been passed by the House of Commons? And I would argue this has only happened four times since World War Two, and the notion, therefore, that we would be doing it on bills like this strikes me as an unelected group of people, however well-meaning they may be, right. taking the authority to say to the democratically elected people in the other house, your views are interesting, but they really don't matter. And I don't think that's appropriate. I think it weakens democracy, and it will bring the Senate into more disrepute than it already has become.
1: That's what I was thinking, too. There's a lot of Canadians out there who would not be happy to have the Senate behaving in this fashion. So what are the alternatives? How do, we, how do you
9: fix that? Well, I think there's two things that have to happen. One are short-term and one are long-term. On this bill, um, I believe that the Senate has a very good chance of not accepting the committee's report, therefore not killing the bill. And then there'll be some debate on some amendments. That would then send the bill back to the House of Commons with a few amendments. Then the House of Commons has the right to either accept them or to reject it and send it back unchanged, at which point the Senate would have, in my view, no authority to stand in the way. But of course, everything in the world of politics is about time and opportunity. We're only five weeks away from the end of this parliamentary session, and um, an election is coming. So that's why you hear the Prime Minister saying that people may have to sit longer hours to get enough of the bills that are important passed. So that's the short-term dynamic. The longer dynamic is about changing the rules of the Parliament of Canada Act, which only gives authority and power to partisan um, officials in the chambers. So if you're the opposition House leader in the House of Commons, you get staff and support and you have authority. But if you're an independent in the House of Commons, if you're independent senators in the Senate, you get actually none of that. Hmm. And that requires a change to the Parliament of Canada Act. And we can look at the way in which the House of Lords operates, where the vast majority of members of the House of Lords are not affiliated with any party. They're called crossbenchers. And when governments and oppositions bring in bills or bring in concerns, they have to appeal to the crossbenchers because they actually have the clout. And I think that would be a step ahead because it would mean that that ability to have sober second thought do some tweaking, suggest some changes, is enhanced, but the ability to stop something dead in its tracks uh-huh. after the people of Canada voted for it would be not enhanced.
1: This is the unintended consequence, then, of the whole like, Senate fallout of the last few years over the whole Duffy situation is making everybody independent, and this is the end result.
9: Well, I don't know that the two issues are, are all that closely related to the Prime Minister's credit. When he was leader of the third party, he said there are no more Liberal members in the Senate who are part of my liberal caucus, they're all independents. And then he committed in the election campaign to bringing in another way of appointing senators rather than a prime minister standing in the shower and thinking, oh boy, wouldn't she be a great appointee? Wouldn't he be a great appointee? Now there is this committee, which is like the British system, which clears nominations. People can nominate themselves or be nominated by not-for-profit or other community groups, and then they're assessed in terms of their background, their skill, their capacity to contribute, and then those names are sent forward to the Prime Minister and under our Constitution, based on the Supreme Court ruling, only he can make a recommendation to the Governor General. But so far, everybody who's been appointed under this process doesn't come with any political affiliation of any kind.
1: Right, so then I guess the House of Commons, as you pointed out, the solution is to to recognize that the Senate is a different place now.
9: Well, that's right. And to make sure that the Parliament of Canada Act reflects uh, this new structure so that each piece in our bicameral parliamentary system can play their role appropriately, respectful always of the democratic core of our system, people who get elected should have more authority than people who don't get elected, Mm -hmm. but also ensuring that when you bring people from different parts of Canada who have a background in human rights or a background in advertising or a background in constitutional rights or a background in social policy or in agriculture, uh, they are able to make a contribution based on their expertise, but not a contribution which is as partisan as it would have been under the previous system. All right.
1: Makes sense. Hugh, thank you so much for explaining it to us. My pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Hugh Siegel, principal of Massey College and senior advisor at Aird & Burles LLP. But also, of course, you remember him. He worked for former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and he also sat in the Senate as an Ontario Conservative between 2005 and 2014. Well, you may have seen facial recognition technology in the news recently for a couple of different reasons. There was the story out of San Francisco where the city announced a ban on government use of the technology. Uh, And then you've got the entertainment industry where Taylor Swift was mentioned in relation to facial recognition technology because apparently it's used at Taylor Swift concerts to identify potential stalkers. The reality is that you may not think you're interacting with facial recognition technology, but it turns out you probably are every day, unknowingly. And that's what we're going to talk about right now with the help of our next guest. It is Chris Hobbs, the president of TTT Studios this is a Vancouver based digital innovation studio Chris thank you for joining us no,
10: it's definitely my pleasure
1: what is the company all about tell me about this well,
10: we're about making magic happen what so, does that mean hey we've got the greatest job in the world people come to us with an idea or a vision and we get to be the people that realize it so um, if you so many of the business people have these amazing ideas of how to uh, leverage technology but at the end of the day no capacity to do it so we get to be the genies in the bottle they get to uh, you know leverage our experience to to make those things happen
1: do you you think facial recognition technology is a good thing?
10: A hundred percent.
1: Really? Oh yeah. Have you seen Minority Report? Oh yeah. Have you read
10: 1984? Yeah, well, I, loved, I loved it. <laughs> I've even read that one in Russian, so <laughs> which says a lot right there.
1: <laughs> how do we reconcile those two things, though, Chris? Because, like, how do we make sure it's not? the ba- the worst part it can be with mm. only being the good parts
10: so i guess say first off saying tom cruise in any movie for me is probably the worst part but but we'll oh. we'll, leave, we'll leave that oh, one yes. part out yes. um well there's going to be a lot of positives and negatives the the real challenge right now is the fact that the government rules and regulations are way behind um, where it is right now it's just a vision and an idea, but the reality is is a lot of things that are happening that the the rules just can't catch up to yet. Um, and I think what they're doing in San Francisco, what you're what you're um, talking to is is really interesting um, because they're trying to like almost create a hey, let's stop. And think about how this technology can be used before those rules, you know, let's actually bring some rules in. What a novel
1: in. idea, though, because oh. we don't do that. Well, my, my only
10: complaint I have about that whole story around San Francisco is the fact that I guess the byline can't be that long and no one reads more than the byline. So everyone <laughs> thinks that that means facial recognition is being blocked in San Francisco, where it's just being through the police Disgust. and government agencies. No, it is being blocked for, for those. And I think for good reason. I, I don't know if you've seen some of the crazy things that policing agencies have been using facial recognition for. Yeah. Um, but when you have, say, a sketch artist <laughs> try to create something and then they try to throw that through the algorithm or they take a, hey, he kind of looked like Tom Cruise. Let's put a picture of Tom Cruise through and see what it returns. Let's see what happens. Oh, it's complete garbage. The, these algorithms are never created for that. And but that's it- really what some of the problems are and what they're realizing they need to to create rules to stop that from even happening.
1: Well, I think rules about when we're allowed to use this and not allowed to use it, I think is a good idea. But as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, the problem is with technology, we tend to race ahead first and think about the consequences Mm. later. Is Mm -hmm. that happening with facial recognition? Probably not as much
10: as people think in North America. For example, with the Taylor Swift story, um, that they were using a kiosk system where people could, uh, super fans could go in there and, um, you know, do a quick show and everything, but they were taking the picture. That was actually opt in because you That's were different. opting in to go you in there going to into do the it. Booth, yes. Correct. Um, and for example, uh, the state of Illinois, this is illegal. So if you look at their. Um, the company that handles the security on that side, they won't do it in Illinois. Ah. So it is a bit more of an opt-in. So the stories, you know, the good, the bad, they don't really understand that they are still concerned about the legal uh, requirements around it. Now, you do have these stories, like in England, uh, where, where they've been using cameras and facial technology for a very long time. I mean, yeah. you can't go anywhere without seeing a camera in, in years, England. yeah. Very much so. Um, they were doing the facial recognition at concerts, trying to discover um, bad people. And what all that did was produce a whole lot of false positives. So oh. what they did is they basically impeded the good people who they thought were the bad people from seeing a concert. And that I'm a twin. That would upset me.
1: Yeah, let, let's <laughs> talk about you being a twin yes. because your identical, identical twin Pretty brother, close. David, mm-hmm. has co-founded the studio with you. Mm-hmm. And I understand that one of your big projects that you've got... Mm-hmm. Is your, it's Amanda AI. Amanda AI, yes. And this is your smart receptionist. Correct. That can recognize and greet visitors and automatically notify the person. So they can recognize you by face, mm-hmm. but can they tell the difference between you and your identical twin brother?
10: Well, one of the reasons why we created Amanda was because my brother could open up my iPhone. And I can't open his. And that drove me insane. And so we thought, well, we need to have an algorithm that works with twins. And in fact, ours is so good that I want to take it to the next twin conference. I think they have them in Wisconsin. And actually just test it on that. And to say, look, let's just make sure that we can identify all of you. I've got high confidence we can.
1: So how do you do that then? How do you differentiate? How do you write a code so that... It can tell the difference between two identical twins. Yeah, it's
10: all about data. It's all about using data and creating the algorithms that are good. It's also about having an amazing, talented pool that we have at TTT. Um, the majority of our of our engineers have masters or PhDs, which is kind of rare for for a, a design and development studio. Right, um, but it's because we want to push the uh, the latest technologies beyond the current capacity. Um, so that's. Basically, we really dig into the science, and we have some amazingly talented people that are able to push that.
1: Where is this going to be used, though? Like, this is interesting. Okay, I can see showing up at a place, and they don't have a receptionist and seeing this used, but... We're mainly how is this going to interact sure. with our daily lives? Well, let,
10: let me give you an example of where we used it three weeks ago. So okay. there's a Singularity University. Uh, Singularity University is a, um, a fascinating group. Um, it's, it's international. though There's a Canadian branch, and it's really dedicated to um, to really improving everyone's lives. But it's done by the hoity toity. Okay, the people that are there. This is a three to five thousand dollar ticket. I
1: was ticket. the only one who used hoity toity, oh,
10: but yeah. okay. Well, we, we've got That's... that in common then. So. Um, these tickets, are, um, or these people that go here, so uh, we had a rollout in Edmonton three, maybe four weeks ago at the at the uh, Singularity University Conference. Okay. 1,200 people. And what we did was we pre-registered all of them to have their faces already taken. Okay? So, so when their they pictures came-
1: were, you already had their pictures on so, the record.
10: So when they showed up, or when they register for the for the for the tickets, they they use their faces. Okay. Right. So when they showed up, it was ten seconds to get their, their name tags and go in. Now we created mm-hmm. a line in a big queue. And we didn't need to use it the whole time, except for the people that opted out, which was 10%.
1: Okay, so when you got them to do this, mm-hmm. was, were they doing it, like, online with their cameras, with their y- Yes, own? or
10: with just a picture. So, so they I was thinking, just,
1: you can't use regular pictures, because everybody photoshops the crap out of those these days. Y- yeah,
10: yeah, very much so. My yeah. eyes aren't that big. Yeah, I wish exactly. they were, you know. Um, but at, this, at the same time, I mean, KPMG is one of our partners, and we had a we had the, rolled out the same thing, which is the re- event registration system, and we used 500 of their partners. Uh, so, that's the senior, the senior partner there and we did an event in Montreal and we used pictures that could have been from the 1970s for some of these people and it worked 100% of the time. Really? Yeah, I, even I was surprised about that, I'll admit.
1: Jeez, if you, if you, what are interns going to do then if you're not the people who are sitting there <laughs> greeting people at a conference? What well, are you going to do? You
10: know what? We still have a human there because it's necessary to say hi. You know, people want to see a face.
1: Okay, which brings us to the question of automation mm-hmm. then. Are you putting people out of work by creating this kind of stuff?
10: I sure hope not. I, I personally don't even use those machines that, uh, you know, the stores when the you check-ups? I will I refuse to use it every single time they say just use it sir I'm, I always say that I like to keep but people employed.
1: You're putting receptionists out of work you're going to put Well other-
10: actually no. Okay so the the irony of, of Amanda.ai or Amanda AI is Amanda's the middle name of our receptionist okay so Jordan who's the most amazing person in the world and the joke was it's to replace her but it's not at all it's to keep her so she doesn't have to be at the desk anymore. So now she's doing a lot more of our HR functions and other functions because we have a device that greets you At our office, and it doesn't allow. She's no longer required to be there, so it's actually liberating and forcing people to do other work, which is, which is personally, I think it's a net positive.
1: Okay, so how much do you think the world is going to change then in the next five to ten years? If this is the kind of stuff you're working <laughs> on now, what am, what's the world going to look like five years from now?
10: Well, we'll all be known a lot better, for good, for good or bad, um, which, which you know, as as we talked a little bit beforehand, does, does terrify me, both of us. There's a great
1: scene in Minority Report, mm-hmm. right, where Tom Cruise walks into like a gap or something, mm-hmm. and the, they greet him. Yep. The computer greets him by yep. name and then shows him things in his size. Yep. I mean, is that what we're headed towards? Totally,
10: 100% personalization. Is but it a good thing? Very. Uh, that's that's up to you. I mean, I personally, I think it's a wonderful thing. Like for for example, my kids. We have we have a HomePod at home, and my kids are constantly changing my music for me. But. Wow. These Kids new devices, that. with the, the with the you know, from Alexa to Google and all that, they actually want the next step is they want to do facial recognition, so it recognizes you and personalizes your media. Okay, as but you wait come a minute—they're
1: already listening to everything I say. Now they want to know exactly what I look like. Too. Oh, I know!
10: Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but but this comes down to this is actually what's quite interesting to me. It's why Google refuses to sell; um, they don't want to um, sell to the government and the military anymore any of their AI technologies, whereas Amazon does. But the interesting thing at the end of the day, is I think Amazon's in the wrong place to say we do. And the reason why is because they're selling consumer products. Now, what's to stop someone from selling the consumer version that's in your home that you want privately firewalled from your house to being a database from from some of the services they're creating outside of your home? Because they could actually tier those together. Whereas Google's made a made a decision, in my mind, um, you know, they have the, the do not be evil, but I think there's more to that. They realize that, you know, people <laughs> might stop buying their devices yeah. if they think it's that way. And look at how 23andMe works. I mean, it's caught serial killers. Um, just based on their DNA, that has nothing to do with them. So the the people you know that are being I know, now serial killers
1: have to work about their rel- worry about their relatives <laughs> who are going on these genetic websites, right? It's,
10: it's, it's amazing to think about, though, isn't it?
1: But who is Chris? Who is going to protect us? Who's going to protect us from human nature's worst mm. impulses to use this kind of technology for the wrong reasons? Because you know as great as your intentions are somebody out there their intentions are not
10: sure no i you want I, I wish i had a solid answer for you but i think i think there's going to be the fact that people are going to want to have opt in only Um, I think that's a big thing. Because as long as you opt in, then the personalization of these services is incredible, what it can do for you. But, um, you know, if you can opt in, opt out. But I think there's going to be a lot of eggs broken on the way to get there. What does that mean? Well, I I think that a lot of people are going to... spots? Well, they're going to push the technology beyond where it should go. You know, where where there's no sort of ethics person watching it. Um, Especially smaller startups who think, hey, let's just push this, uh, you know, push the technology as opposed to thinking what that can be. Because if they break those eggs, well, they can just fold and you know, lesson learned. Right. Um, but I think a lot of the bigger companies, it's going to be harder for them to do that. So you are so positive about this then. I'm a positive person by nature.
1: Yeah, I've gotten that impression yeah, in a okay. few minutes that I've gotten to know <laughs> you then. Where can people find out more information about all this?
10: Well, I mean, there's there's so many different places. I mean, there's a lot of places in San Francisco that are, are, are in the Valley that are actually just creating... Um, Specific AI and specific things to try to combat that. And they're trying to think on both ethical sides. And, you know, and there are watchdogs. Oh, very much. It's necessary. And and there are watchdogs, you know, provincial and uh, federal watchdogs, but I think they're playing catch up, too. And I I don't think they even know how to give answers. So there'll be recommendations. uh, But at the end of the day, I think you have to kind of think with your head and heart and think, is this is this ethical? And, you know, and then follow those, those and guidelines. Do I want this, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I mean, it's, it's a tough one because at the end of the day, technology has double uses for pretty much everything.
1: I want to find out what happens when you go to the Twin Conference. But Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>
10: oh, it's truly my pleasure. Thank you. Uh,
1: that is Chris Hobbs, president. Is it TTT or Triple T?
7: TTT Studios. TTT
1: Studios, a Vancouver-based digital innovation studio.